Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. That's Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the reading of the Lord. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the ter territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left the nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. Uh, let's pray before we begin. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find wisdom, and in your will discover your peace, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. It's good to see you all, especially I want to welcome back all the college students who are back for the weekend or anybody who's visiting family and you're back for the weekend, welcome back. It's nice to have uh, a lot more people in here because less heat, more bodies, save money. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's good to see you back, really it is. And I don't know how your weekends were, but I want to say again, I forgot to say it this past Sunday and I feel terrible. If you would like to spend your Thanksgiving weekend with my family, you are welcome to, anytime. Um, I, just, I just give a little kind of disclosure that we meet at 10 o'clock a.m. on Thursday morning, and then we have about a three-hour worship, and, but then we eat food. But you're all welcome to come any year you want to come. I have yet to have someone take me up on that, but I, wanna, I just want to let you know the invitation is out there, and I hope you had a really good weekend too, uh, and I hope you spent it with people you love. If not, spend it with me, second best, I hope, and so we can spend Thanksgiving uh, or uh, that kind of joyous weekend with people we love. Um, we have been going through the book of Matthew, and as we go through the book of Matthew, I think we see that even when we go through the book of Exodus, we go through the book of Matthew, all these things, we see all these kind of themes coincide with the way our personal lives are going and also the way our church is going. 
It's pretty amazing if you think about it because that's the Spirit of God at work. And some of you have come up to me and said, this is my testimony, is that when we did this word and when you preached on it or when we went over this in the church, like that was exactly what I was going through. Or this is amazing because this is what our church is going through. I want to say more than any of man's planning or any of my kind of manipulation, this is, this is God's spirit leading his church. And I hope that you see that and that you can praise, the God, praise God for that. Lift up praise to the Lord. He's worthy of praise and worship. And so that's what we want to do. I, um, I am going to take this and do my best to drink it. I have one uh, living grandma with me left, or grandparent with me left, and I met with her. I, I had to drive her to Long Island from Queens, and I said, hey, grandma, and as soon as I said it, she's like, what's wrong with your voice? And I said, I'm sorry, I'm tired. But I think it's because I've been preaching every week. Pastor Paul will help more, I think. Uh, so I gotta drink more water. Uh, my grandma is very, has a very meticulous ear, a very sensitive ear. Uh, I think I told this story a long time ago, but I, I used to be like this little kid before he hit puberty. I could like sing like a soprano high and I would just mimic like the queen of the night aria and stuff. And then as soon as I hit puberty, I went over to my grandma's house. This is on my mom's side. And I said, hi, grandma, like this. And then she got a stick and started hitting me. And I, she was chasing me around the room. She's like, stop doing that. And I was like, grandma, this is my voice now. And she was, I think, the most uh, sad that I lost that voice. Anyway, that's the grandma I know. But um, I also met with my uncle. And we got to talk a lot about church. And, you know, he was like, how's church? And I said, oh, it's, it's, uh, there's good times and there's hard times. And then he looked at me, he's like, that absolutely told me nothing about, because everybody goes through good times and hard times. And he's like, this guy, already a politician, no, but, uh, and he was telling me, you know, we all have hard times, and he told me this story. He's like, uh, there was this bishop who went in front of his congregation and said, who leads the church? Is it me or is it Jesus? Who leads the church? Me or Jesus? And everybody's like, Jesus leads the church. He's like, okay, and then he left, and he just went home without giving the, the sermon, and then my uncle was laughing, and I was like, uh, I don't know about you, but my church would love it. Like, five-minute sermon, hallelujah. And then, anyway, I'm just kidding. I know you guys all love the message part, and we want to get to it. Um, and I hope that, like, all the things that we go through, um, and I, I share a little bit about my personal experiences only because I hope that you see some of the personal experiences that you also go through I want you to kind of line it up with the word of God. Don't just interpret it on your own. Line it up with the word of God. See where the spirit of God is leading you. And I assure you that God is leading you to a good place. A place flowing with milk and honey. You know, by quiet and still waters. By uh, green pastures. You know, this is what the word, God, word of God gives us. He's leading us there. So... I hope that we can also follow along and that God uses everything, the good times and also the difficult times, to lead his church. But he leads his church by his word. And this is what we want to get into today. That's why I'm excited about Matthew. I'm excited about anything that we do together because it's together we study the word. And we start off today and it's a very kind of somber attitude. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested 
So there is this section that we talked about last week with the temptations of Jesus. By the way, we talked about uh, the three temptations about angels not having wings and all that stuff. And some people were like, wait, that's weren't seraphim and weren't the cherubim angels? And then I said, where is that in the Bible? It's like, oh, man. Anyway, but we talked about all these things. But that was in between two parts, John the Baptist doing his ministry and then this portion right here. So this was inserted, we believe, because Jesus said, tell this story. Tell this story. So we had the temptation of Jesus. But John had been arrested and says he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, if you remember Stickman, Stickman, there's like a song. No, there isn't a song, but if we, leaving Stick, uh, Sticktown, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun, Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And so there was this prophecy that's fulfilled through all this happening. And so I said, whenever we see... Uh, a prophecy being fulfilled, we should put that up on the screen. Shouldn't we go over where it's from? It's from Isaiah chapter 9. Do we have it? Yes, we have it. Okay, this week we have it. Yes, praise the Lord. And this is um, from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 2. So you'll see here what was read in Matthew, and there is a bigger portion of context for us to kind of see. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. You see, all this is like, Oh my goodness, this is crazy. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So when people first heard this, they must have been like, what, what, what's going on? Why is Isaiah even saying this? But when this happens, you see, this perfectly fits into the narrative that Matthew is telling the story of Jesus Christ. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And that's the prophecy being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's where we have this portion of uh, Isaiah chapter. I don't want to put up the whole thing, but... Just reading it is going to be amazing if you do read that full chapter. But I have two verses after this in that section. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, right? Yes, okay. So we have that too. And this may be a very familiar passage. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And I don't know if anyone here is familiar with G.F. Handel's Messiah, but there is a song called For Unto Us a Child is Born. For, uh, I can't do it well, but it kind of goes like, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Right? Uh, do you guys know that song? If not, I have asked instead of the normal kind of praise team finishing us off, we're going to put that up after the benediction so you can kind of hear it. Um, there are less and less uh, kind of symphonic orchestras and choirs playing this now because more and more young people aren't going into classical music. They're going into other types of music, which is fine. It's great. You know, we need, 
more hip hop beats and things like that. But um, we also don't. We also see a less less trending of um, of this kind of classical stuff. So if you want to hear it, it's it's a little more difficult. So I actually had to look a lot to see. Oh man, everybody has a different interpretation. They don't have this Mozart interpretation that you know some people might be used to. And things like like this piece was so brilliant. Like even Mozart was like, this is divine work. This is like. This has, to be, this has to have been inspired by the Spirit. And then, you know, the song goes, um, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And then they have this little part. It's, um, it's a melisma, which is a vocal technique. It goes, ha, 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 So I can't do it well. I, I did what I could for you. But it has that part. It's a vocal technique. It's an old technique from centuries, centuries old. And people use it. Uh, to do like a kind of trance. Even like the olden days, um, they would sing a song like, right? like, that's a really old song, right? I'm just saying, like, they would sing this song and it would put you in this trance. So it's like you elongate syllables and then you take a word and you just make it really long and it puts you in kind of a trance. So that's, that's, that's a melisma, it's a vocal technique. What G.F. Handel did, the brilliance of it, I don't wanna tell you, is that he would take this technique and then he goes, ha 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 ha, right? And then it would build up to the chorus part. And then everybody would come out and they would sing the, the verse seven. It was like, wonderful, counselor. Almighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And it would just climax at that part. So instead of putting you in this deep trance and put you to sleep, it would lift up your spirit and like, this is what we've all been waiting for. The everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. And this is what actually I think the Bible is kind of showing us here when we see that. There are hard times that we go through. There are difficult times that we're going through, even maybe right now. But the promise that God is giving us is that the son and the child that was born, he's a wonderful, mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. And we build up to this climax. And it's amazing. It's beautiful. It's divine. It's miraculous. And it's awesome. And this is what we are actually walking through. Imagine like going through this really difficult time. And then this prophecy being fulfilled, a light has been shown. And there's this one portion in Isaiah chapter 9, 6, 7. Um, it says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And you've got to think, uh, what does that even mean? The government is upon his shoulder. Even, even the song, for unto us a child is born. And they sing, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Like they, they go for a long time. What does it mean for Jesus to have the government on his shoulder? And this is something that we're supposed to understand from the very beginning. Jesus hasn't even spoken yet, right? In, in, in the passage, he hasn't preached yet or anything like that to the people. And even before he begins, what are we supposed to get? And we saw if we took this prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 to 2, and we just read it in context, and then it says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, we are to understand something. And that is, Jesus didn't just come to bring a moral teaching. 
He didn't come just to bring religion. You can say Christianity is a religion, and it is, and it is in a sense. But Jesus didn't come to bring a religion. He came to bring in kingdom. The government shall be upon his shoulders. Jesus came to bring the kingdom. And so the first thing he says when he preaches is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near or at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's like, I'm bringing the kingdom. It's upon my shoulders. And praise God for that. Like, I can't shoulder anything. Like, yeah, if I'm just being honest with you, just shouldering my own family's weight is rough. It's difficult. How can I bear and shoulder that responsibility, especially if I make a decision and now generations after me are affected? And some of you may be going through things like that. If you're a leader, how can I shoulder these things? But not only that is what Jesus is saying, but the government, the entire kingdom of God is on his shoulders. He's bringing it. And the first thing he says before that is repent. Uh, Repent means exactly what I just said. Repent means I don't know the way. I don't know the way. I don't know the way. You lead the way. All my life I thought it was this way, but now that I've walked, I'm coming up at a dead end. I don't know the way. That's what repent means. But I want to let you know today, it means more than just that. It's saying, I'm not king. All this time I acted like I was king over my life. I was ruler over my life, but I'm not king, you're king. The first time that uh, we see that Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it should have brought people all the way back. Remember, all of this stuff is very reminiscent of Eden and Exodus. The first time God is called king in Exodus, if you remember, was that song Moses taught the Israelites how to sing. He said the song, and this whole song, and remember afterwards, Miriam went out and she led the congregation into singing with cymbals and tambourines and things like that. And um, it says at the end of the song, the Lord will reign forever and ever in Exodus chapter 15, verse 18. And reign forever and ever is from the word melech. Melech is where we get the word king, lord, captain, ruler, prince, and chief. So you can see this whole kind of symphony and musical piece coming together. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. He's saying now the reign of God, the kingdom of God is here, is at hand. And that's what he's saying, repent is saying, I'm not king, you're king. When you read the Bible, actually it's good to say it to yourself too. When you read the Bible, you read it and say, I'm not king, Jesus, you're king. But I'm going to say, it's even more than that. It's saying, you're the true king, and I've acted the king I wrought terror, not good. You are the true king, and I've acted the king, and I've wrought terror and not good. R.C. Sproul says this, the late R.C. Sproul, he says, true, repent, true repentance reflects contrition, a godly remorse for offending God. So when Jesus says repent, he's calling all people that hear his voice now, 
Repent because the kingdom of God is coming. It's at hand. We're going to go to the second point. The second point is Jesus calls. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. And he goes, he calls Simon, he calls Andrew, he calls, and he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they followed him. He saw two other brothers, James and John. They were with his father Zebedee, and they were mending their nets. He called them immediately. They left the boat and their father and followed him. Christianity is a call. It's a call. Jesus has to call you, and he does. He calls you and says, follow me. The kingdom of God is at hand. That means he's bringing the kingdom, and he calls you to follow him, to be with him, in his kingdom. There is a, 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 you might think it's kind of just nuance or I'm just talking semantics, but it's not. Do we build the kingdom of God? Do we build the kingdom of God? We go, let's build the kingdom of God. The answer is no, we don't build the kingdom of God. Who builds the kingdom? Who brings the kingdom? Jesus does. Jesus is the one that brings the kingdom. So you don't have to worry about building the kingdom at all, okay? Jesus is the one that brings the kingdom and he calls us to follow him. And this is not just kind of any small call. This call to follow Christ is the biggest and the most important call that you will ever receive in your life. That is the capital C call. People have come up to me and said, I really want to know what the call of my life is. What should it be? Should it be Dartmouth or should it be Brown? And they believe that's a call that they need to be given. But I'm saying that is a lower KC call, lower KC. I need to know some wisdom, so some discernment. So I want to know, should I take this job here in Brooklyn or should I take this job here in downtown Manhattan? I need to know where God is calling me. I want to let you know that is a lower KC call, lower KC. I need to know if I should have 2.5 kids or 2.3 kids. Honestly, that's, you see where I'm getting? That's a lower KC call. What is the capital C call? What is the most important call that you can receive in your life is to follow Christ and his word. And this is not something that we take lightly. It's not something that we can just be like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Look at exactly what they did. They immediately left their boat and their father and father. They were in the middle of doing something. They were mending their nets. It's like, this is how we eat. This is how we live. This is how I make bread. This is how I'm going to go to the event tonight. Event tonight, right? And then this is what I do. It's almost Friday. You got to get it going. You know, that kind of thing. And then he's saying, when Jesus called, immediately they put down their nets and they just followed him. It's, it's, it's the biggest, most important call of your life. And... I'm going to tell you there are going to be people that try to stop it. There are going to be people that try to stop it. I mentioned a long time ago, there is this, uh, there's this book. It's called um, Pilgrim's Progress. There's this part where the Christian, the main character, he goes and Christian um, is walking and he goes down this hill. There's a cross. It's really interesting. And a sepulcher. And um, the, at the bottom of the hill... Ironically enough, at, at, at the cross, there are these three other people, three other characters here in this story. And the three characters are simple, sloth, and presumption. 
Simple sloth and presumption. And they're chained. It says that they're fettered. They were chained. And so Christian, he needs to follow Christ. This is the big call, right? Christian needs to go. And then he sees these guys, so he feels bad for them. So he exhorts them. He wakes them up from their sleep. And he goes, look, you're going to die. This is not good. You need to move, and you need to keep on moving. If you need help, you know what? Let me help you unshackle. I will help you. And you need to go. And this is what Simple said. Simple, it says here, naively answered, I don't see any danger. I don't see any danger. And then Sloth, he mumbles, Let's just let me have a little bit more sleep. Just let me have a little bit more sleep. And presumption proudly asserts. And this is what presumption says. Every tub must stand upon its own bottom without the need of assistance. So what else can I say? It, it's gibberish. It's garbage. <laughs> like, presumption is so proud of himself. He's saying things that doesn't even make any logical sense. He's so proud of himself. That's presumption. There are three Three characters here, and then as we try to move along, we hear the call, we see, are we these three? Are we simple? Are we sloth? Are we presumption? Because what happened afterwards, they all laid it down and slept again. And Christian decided it would be better to move on. So he moves on from that way. Later on, the next book, um, Christian runs into these characters again, but this time they're dead. And so... I want to say this is why there's an immediacy to the call. It's not something that we take lightly. Jesus calls, and there's an immediacy to the call. And this is why people heard this. And its importance demands immediacy. Its heaviness demands reckless abandonment of anything else. And its utter value demands we look to no one else. Its importance demands immediacy. Its heaviness demands reckless abandonment. Its utter value demands we look to no one else. And this is why I say this is the most important call is to follow Christ and his word because this is what we believe in as a church because this is what the Bible says. We could put up John chapter 8, verse 31. In John chapter 8, verse 31, it says, If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's go on to the next and last uh, section, Jesus' ministers. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread out throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus does three things here. He teaches, he proclaims, and he heals. He teaches, he proclaims, and he heals. These aren't small things. These aren't just little things. These are incredible things. And this is what we're about to get into. So there's an excitement kind of building up too. There was excitement here in the prophecy, but he's also even building up even more to that. Because when he teaches us, it's not going to be easy to take. It's not. I am going to put this out there. It's going to be difficult. 
it's going to be difficult. I'm not saying it's going to be joyous. It's like awesome, but it's still going to be difficult. And um, I think we live in a time where it's hard to take any kind of correction or instruction. It's hard to like look at certain authority and be like, I respect this person's authority. It's always, how can I criticize? How can I diminish? How can I pull down? And that's a really difficult kind of culture to be brought up with. And I really sympathize, and I'm with all of our students here who have come back um, to just think that everything must be criticized. and The whole world is falling apart. We should just be angry about everything. It, there is something that's being, being done to your hearts that is being broken and then just being pulled apart so that when we talk about peace, immediately what you see is cynicism and you think about criticism. Um, you know, you think this is the only way and then someone disagrees and um, instead of saying, oh, you disagree, then we should have a conversation. Perhaps we can come up with some good points and solutions. Instead of doing like that, you disagree, you must be crazy. Or, and instead of even hate, like we can, a lot of us, maybe you met with family, did you talk about politics? I heard the wise thing to do is always talk about politics. No, it isn't. So we don't talk about politics at all. We just sit and eat and enjoy whatever meal. Like, aunt, this turkey is especially juicy today. And then you just eat it. That's, that's what we do. But is that, is that really going to finish everything? Um, Tim Keller wrote this, uh, wrote this recent, very recently. And he wrote uh, this tweet and he said, Jesus' purpose, and this is along with what, we're, what I just said, Jesus' purpose is not to warm our hearts, but to shatter our categories. Listen to what he's saying. Jesus' purpose is not to warm our hearts, but it's to shatter our categories. The first thing, and this is something that you shouldn't do, but it's like drugs. It's like, I can't help it either. You have to read the comments. So I just scrolled through the comments. And the first thing that someone said was, are they mutually exclusive? That's what they said. And then people started liking that extra comment. So this is what Tim Keller says. Again, Jesus' purpose is not to warm our hearts, but to shatter our categories. And this person writes, are they mutually exclusive? And then people started liking it. And then I yelled into my phone because I try not to post. I said, yes, it is. That's why he put it exclusively in his sentence. What is the problem here? Of course, they're mutually exclusive in what he's trying to say. Every time our hearts are shattered, it doesn't mean that our hearts will be warm. Like, oh, I love it when you destroy my worldview. I'm so warm. It doesn't work like that. Don't you see? Why can't we just accept that wisdom? Instead, we have to always come up with some kind of criticism. So we're smart. And I'm thoroughly convinced a lot of people in our generation like and follow certain people just so that they control them. Thoroughly convinced. I, I think this is what... Like, this will make your day or something, and you're like, oh, I'm so happy. I got so many people upset, and like, this is going to feed me for like at least a week. And, and I'm telling you, that's actually pretty evil. Uh, so I'm going to do my best now after I give the sermon not to read the comment section, but 
Jesus' purpose is not to warm our hearts, but to shatter our categories. When Jesus starts teaching and proclaiming and healing, there's going to be things that are done. If we're really paying attention and looking, it's going to be really difficult. You're going to be like, whoa, what's that mean? And I'm going to ask us, let's do this. Let's go through it. It's exciting. I'm going to put up a, a quote by Kevin DeYoung up there. And Kevin DeYoung is another pastor, and he wrote this on his Twitter, which I thought was brilliant. And it's so, it's so wise. I want you guys to take it in. Uh, one of the acceptable idolatries among evangelical Christians is the idolatry of the family. And he wrote this. And what did I do? I looked at the comments. Like I said, it's after the sermon. So after the sermon, I well, But I looked at the comments and people were just raging, raging. How dare you say that? And how this is an institution that... God has set up, and they just started going, reciting Bible verses, and blah, 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 but um, they completely missed the point, completely missed the point. So what Kevin DeYoung had to do was he needed to extrapolate on that, because people aren't taking the wisdom anymore. They're immediately criticizing first, right? So one of the acceptable idolatries among evangelical Christians is the idolatry of the family, and he wrote this whole blog post, and in his blog, I'm going to sum it up for you, the TLDR version is... While commitment to family is important, it must not come before a commitment to God. That's what it means. Um, while commitment to family is important, it must not come before a commitment to God. And if you continue to think about it, there are so many ways we all fail in this. Just that line. Just that line. So I'm going to put up some bullet points, hopefully, to share this with you. And... He wrote in his blog, and yet virtually every pastor in America can tell you stories of churchgoers who have functionally displaced God in favor of the family. Functionally displaced God in favor of the family. And the, uh, he has six bullet points that he just gives examples. So let's see if you are someone who may have the idolatry of family, perhaps. And these may be some, you know, symptoms. Parents who go missing from church for entire seasons because of Billy's youth soccer league or Sally's burgeoning volleyball career. Committed Christians who would never dare invite a college student or international over for Thanksgiving or Christmas because holidays are for family. Long-time members who can't be bothered to serve on Sundays or reach out to visitors because the whole family gathers at grandma's for lunch. Let's go to the next one. Kind, oh, sorry. Kids, sorry. Kids and grandkids who think, who think they should be accepted into membership or be in line for baptism because their parents and grandparents have been pillars of the church Churches that implicitly or explicitly communicate that marriage is a necessary step of spiritual maturity. That might actually blow some people away. They're like, wait, I thought it was. It, it's not. It's not. Uh, Christians of all kinds who will jettison their theology of marriage or their convictions about church discipline once their children come out of the closet or embrace other kinds of unrepentant sin. 
So we see these six things that Kevin DeYoung is writing, and immediately, like, there's something that's, that's working out right now. There's something at least you're like, whoa, wait a minute. And this is what I am saying. Um, do we have that Tim Keller quote, quote up there? About, yes, so Tim Keller quote, uh, wrote this. He said, we must be aware of our prejudices while hearing but not really hearing is bad for marriages. And it is, like, if, you're, if your spouse is talking to you like, uh-huh, 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 but you're not really listening, it's going to, you're going to end up in trouble. Uh, he's saying it's absolutely destructive of our relationship with God. Absolutely destructive of our relationship with God. The Bible exists in an extraordinary, ignorable form. That means when we read the Bible, it's very easy to be like, okay, I've read it. I'm good. When we have our QTs, we could be like, at least I did QT. And I could be like, what was it about? It was about Jesus. And then that's it. That's how we end it. It's like, what was it about? It was about God and worship. It's, it, it exists as an, in an extraordinary, ignorable form. And this is something that we cannot afford to do as a Christian as someone that is called, we are called to be alert and awake to see what God is teaching us in his word. RC, the late R.C. Sproul, once again, I'm going to quote him. No earnest Christian can ever, ever have a cavalier attitude toward the law of God. This is why when Christ calls us, he calls us into him and his word, like we read before. We need to know what he is saying. And during the next few months... We will be uncomfortable at one point or another. And if you're me, perhaps at every junction. Like, I've, I'm going to be honest with you. There are points and junctures even in my life where I've, I couldn't sleep. Like, this stuff is going on. And this is the word of God. This isn't something just to be dismissed. But this is supposed to be seriously taken. So, during the next few months, we will be uncomfortable at one point or another. And Matthew has compiled what we understand. If you look at chapters um, 5, 6, 7, a little bit of 8, and all that stuff, uh, if you have a red letter Bible, there's red letters all over. And we have a name for that. What do we call it? What do commentators and scholars call this part? They call it the ser well, Who said it? Who said it? Oh, so good. Thank you. Participation. Okay, so the Sermon on the Mount, that's what we call it. The Sermon on the Mount. It's the sermon Jesus preaches to people that are following him. This upside down, doesn't make sense, uncomfortable, please don't go there sermon. When you hear it, social justice warriors will be rattled to hear that it's more than just about doing good to the poor and that you have to live your life holy just like your father is holy, political conservatives or whatever conservative party that you're on, you will be shaken to hear that if you don't help the poor, Jesus is going to say, who are you? I don't know you. Many sleepless nights for myself because I want to love the word of God so deeply that I want to present it to you in the most excellent fashion and way. Prepare yourselves. Commentators actually have dubbed it Sermon on the Mount. But what does scripture call it? What does Jesus call it? 
What does Matthew call it? What do they call it? What did Jesus proclaim? Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom. It's good news. What may seem backwards and difficult is actually good news. When we are called, he gives us his spirit and he strengthens his church and he guides us. So I'm not just going to say, prepare yourselves, haha, but I am saying what the Bible is saying. It's good news. So therefore, the Spirit of God will continue to lead you, will continue to lead this church. So have faith. Take heart. Because this is the good news of the kingdom. And Jesus has come to show us the way. Do you hear him calling your name? Then let down your nets immediately. There's no time to waste. There's no time to sleep. There's no time to make excuses. There's no time to say, I know better. But let it down and follow him. Let's pray.